Hello! Welcome to the Working Girl episode of Sleet Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. We have the inimitable and unique Jolie Hunt from Hunt and Gather. Jolie, introduce yourself and tell us what is this movie that we are going to be talking about? Well, Felix, today's special is Working Girl, a classic, in my very humble opinion, (laughs) film from the late 80s that was really about someone trying to make it, in this case, Wall Street, but really just trying to make it in the business world and getting there through a whole host of sexual harassment, idea poaching. The fashion statements were remarkable. And really, I think it's a movie about rooting for the underdog and what you can achieve if the fairy tale chips fall in your favor, so to speak. And it's your life, right? This is basically the <laughs> Jolie Hunt my biopic. Life. Look, I mean, there's definitely aspects of this movie, you know, without getting out my Stradivarius. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I had a parent who grew up in New York City and a parent who grew up in the sticks and always dreamed of, you know, working in that tall building in Manhattan and living the big life. And so I do think that for my younger self and my current self, it's a good reminder of why you have to hustle to get wherever it is that you're going. Jolie Hunt is nothing if not a hustler. So we will join you (laughs) on the other side talking about Working Girl. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Okay, Jolie, working girl, where were you when you first saw this movie? How old were you? I was 10. 1988 was was a seminal year in my life. And I watched such classics like Cocktail and Beetlejuice and uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. But for me, Rain Man, it was a big year for movies, if you really look it back. It was a big year for movies. Die Hard. It was it the great outdoors, which I still love. I know that's a different podcast, but I was ten and in upstate New York, and promptly after this movie came out, I started researching how old you had to be to get a job. Back in the day, you had to be eleven to have a work permit, and let me tell you, pre-internet, I had to really canvas the streets to get this kind of information. But I promptly got employment in nineteen eighty nine. I think. Hot off the back of uh, Tess McGill. On the basis of this was clearly the way to riches and success in the world was to get a job. A hundred percent, yes. That was the lesson that you learned at age 10 from watching the movie. It is. And, you know, I think growing up with parents from different socioeconomic backgrounds, it was a fascinating look at if you try hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you gussy up a little bit, you too, if you have half a brain on you, you too can be a success story. So I think so much of this movie is about the American dream and what is possible. This is, you're taking this at like face value, American dream. This is like the woman who works her way up from secretary into person with secretary. And it's like, I don't know, a 
duckling flowering into a swan. That was my journey, literally. I mean, my first job out of college working for Putnam Investments was sitting outside of all the male executives. There was a row of secretaries, assistants, we were graduated to being called, and no women were in senior roles. So weirdly, it's, and I don't know that I knew this at 10. In fact, I'm near certain I didn't. But it really was life imitating art, if you think about it. I mean, it was it was hard to break through, and not everybody does. And so, yeah, I'm sure you're going to yell at me for being as cliche as that sounds. Dude, you were 10, yeah. Jolie. We're not going to yell at you for that. Yeah, but I was, I mean, look. I don't remember how I felt exactly at 10 years old about this movie, but watching it 30 years later, it gave me the same kinds of feels. And, you know, I I mean, even her changing her sneakers and her socks into heels, I feel like even some of the examples I took with me through every job in life. And so, yeah, I do think at 10 it was a beautiful display of how do you get ahead and being smart is not the only way. You do have to be a bit cunning. And I'd like to think I did some of that. I also loved this movie when I was little. I don't know what age I was, but it was probably similar to 10, although I would have seen it on a VHS. I would have been six when this came out. So I definitely did not see it in the theaters. And I do think it's a it's a somewhat unique example of a film where the ending is the women getting a corporate job and that is the best thing that can happen. <laughs> like that, that's <laughs> yeah. not a that's not a standard trajectory in film. But I will say it was interesting watching it again because I have not seen it in a very long time. And although I do feel like I know every single line in this movie, whatever you watched it. <laughs> that it is definitely a fairy tale. And I think it is very clearly depicted as a fairy tale, even the way the music kind of fits in at certain points. And and it's a fairy tale about class, about about moving class. And one of the things I did think was interesting, too, was that one of the lessons that I got watching at this time was they were saying the American dream is only possible if you actually break rules, that the idea of pulling yourself up on your own is impossible. That's what she Mm -hmm. realizes, that she can't possibly do that. She has to, A, literally, like, lie and pretend she's someone else, but then she also needs the help of wealthy people who can actually bring her up. That is how that actually works, which is probably one of the more realistic aspects of the film. Which is also the, you know, the trading places trajectory, right? It's the thing of we're going to do something which is kind of basically illegal or immoral or something, but it's in the surface of a greater good and then it will all come fine in, in the end. But it creates this idea of maybe in, I don't know if in the late 80s or, you know, mid, early to late 80s, this was this idea that, it's a little bit of the game is rigged because they the way the game is originally structured for Tess, it doesn't matter that she's going to night school. It doesn't matter that she's very smart. She cannot get ahead. Similar to in Trading Places, like the Eddie Murphy character, not that he was going to night school and attempting to get ahead, but he clearly was, you know, very smart. But it took these amazing outside forces in order for that change to happen, which if you kind of think about it, is a, is almost actually a little bit of a critique of the American dream. Mm. At the same time that it's celebrating it. The real critique of the dream, to fast forward to the final shot of the movie, is like she achieves her dream, she gets the secretary of her own, and then you do that long like helicopter pan out from the Chase Manhattan (laughs) building and she's just revealed to be a cubicle drone in the middle of like 157 other identical cubicles and suddenly you realize that she's just a cog in the machine, right? There's this darkness to the final shot, 
which which kind of makes you look at the whole movie a little bit differently. Maybe, although I also think that was perhaps to also suggest that there are lots of different stories. Like, I understand your reading, and I think it's a perfectly valid reading. But (laughs) one of the things that also jumped out at me at that scene is that throughout the film, you constantly have lateral movement because she's going on the ferry back and forth between, like, her old life and her new life. But she is only going back and forth. It's lateral. And it's that point when she goes up. like Oh, that's an interesting one. So that was the other thing that kind of jumped out at me. I like that. I like the the moving from the horizontal to the vertical. There's a lot of stuff happens at the end of the movie in elevators. That's true. Yes. Uh, <laughs> elevators are a key a key part of the final bit of the movie in the way that they haven't really appeared anywhere else in the movie up until that point. Like the big meetings that she's having at Trask Industries and stuff, they, they all seem to be on the ground floor just around the corner from the yes. like, entrance. <laughs> yeah, the one flight of stairs. Yeah. One flight of stairs where, where you can have a quick emergency meeting before going into the big meeting. <laughs> I was reading an early version of the script, actually, and it turns out that Petty Marsh, which is the bank that she works for, is named in the script as the world's largest brokerage house. Mm. <laughs> Although she winds up working for Trask, right? She doesn't yes, wind up working exactly. for Petty Marsh in the end. I think I would like to do a quick detour into the mechanics of this movie, which are extremely confusing because there's <laughs> the company she winds up working for, which is this big company which has like offices and secretaries and she winds up living happily ever after in that. There's the company she was working for up until that point, which is the world's largest brokerage house. There's the company which is run by Colonel Sanders, which is the one they're trying to buy. And then there's Jack Trainer. Who works for another company entirely? Dewey Stone. Dewey Stone. Dewey Stone. Stone. So does anyone understand like what Dewey Stone has to do with anything and how he's necessary to anything? Well, it's interesting because he asks in the film, he says, why are you bringing me in? Right. It's suggested, I would say, that the Catherine Parker character, the Sigourney Weaver character, apparently didn't feel that her team had a sufficient ability to put this deal through. So she went to him. Also, he's her love interest. So that probably also <laughs> has something to do with it. But I, that was, I think, the idea. Yeah. Well, I but think... also she was she was stealing the idea. Yes. So she also right. had to, by the nature of the theft of the idea, she had to go somewhere else. But I agree with you. It was not clear why we needed all these companies and elevators <laughs> and staircases and Briefcases. The briefcase. A lot of leather. It took a lot of leather to make this movie. Jolie, as the connoisseur of luxury goods in this here conversation, (laughs) can you tell us about the semiotics of the briefcase that Jack gives Tess? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a seminal moment. And I, I think even before that, the line to me, when they met at the cocktail party that she wasn't really meant to be. And she puts on that $6,000 dress. And it's not even leather. <laughs> it's not even <laughs> not leather. leather. <laughs> and I thought it was so telling that Jack Trainer, a.k.a. Harrison Ford, who, by the way, is a babe in this movie. I mean, I, I was always house. too young for Harrison Ford. And I was like, oh, I, I really get it now. I, <laughs> I appreciate him in my early 40s. He, he gives her a compliment that you're the first woman that dresses like a woman at these things, not like how a woman thinks a man would dress if he were a woman. I'd be looking for you. Why, do you know me? No, no. I promised myself that when I saw you, I would get to know you. You're the first woman I've seen in one of these damn things that dresses like a woman, not like a woman thinks a man would dress if he was a woman. 
Thank you, I guess. What are you doing here? Actually, I'm looking for someone myself. His name is Jack Trainer. He works at Dewey Stone. Do you know if he's here? Why are you looking for him? Well, because I have a meeting with him tomorrow, and I thought it might be nice to say hello and get a head start, you know? Well, he, uh, just left. And I do think that leads into the briefcase scene, because to me, it... I felt like it was him assisting her. And to Anna's earlier point, you need someone to pull you up in these situations, right? And actually, Catherine gives her that guidance as well when she tells her to change her jewelry. So there's all these subtle cues on your, you're almost there. You, you need to cut your hair if you want to be taken seriously. You can't wear six pounds of blue eye makeup. I mean, by the way, I, I do on occasion. <laughs> and I, I think it has its place. I'd like the record to show, but... But I think he gives her the briefcase because it's clear she doesn't have one. And, you know, she takes that rubber band off of the, her satchel in the meeting with him. And, you know, I was wondering how he got the briefcase so quickly. But, you know, I guess that's Hollywood for you. This is kind of, I think, the comic highlight of his career. He turns out to be an amazing Cary Grant figure, basically. Yeah. This is the classic Cary yep. Grant role. And Cary Grant was a great comic actor. And I've never seen Harrison Ford be so just, like, glamorously funny. Mm-hmm. And you kind of feel like this movie, it feels like a Hitchcock movie in that sense. I agree. And one of the things that jumped out at me, too, and kind of going back to also that line about a woman dressing like a man thinks a woman would dress if they were a man. The way that gender worked in this film, because the Harrison Ford character is almost kind of feminized at certain points. Mm-hmm. Like the way that these women are kind of ogling his body, he's being objectified. The way that the Catherine Parker character at one point like is basically trying to sexually assault him. I mean, <laughs> he plays a very interesting role. And at the same time, like there's that scene like when they're going to sleep together for the first time and they're both taking off their like button down shirts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is also this just, I, I feel like the film is doing something actually kind of interesting with gender. And the way that he gets all vulnerable with her, right? When he's like, I yes, really need yeah. this deal and uh, he almost like breaks into tears. Well, but it's such a counterpoint to the Alec Baldwin character. Right. <laughs> I do feel like all of these examples are, it's like point and counterpoint. It's like he's a pig who, you know, thinks she went to traffic court because she looked good <laughs> that day. <laughs> No, I just meant the hair and the duds and the briefcase. What's going on? Make fun of you. No, no, you look good. Classy. What, you have to go to traffic court or something? No, I just got off work. I sort of got a promotion. Whereas here's, you know, it's the classic kind of Prince Charming. Of course he's going to show up with a briefcase. Of course he's going to carry her up a flight of stairs after meeting her, you know, an hour prior and put her into bed and, you know, not take naked selfies with her. So it's, I think that's why so many women love this movie too, right? It's the fantasy of it all. Mm -hmm. One of the things too, though, that kind of reminds me of the Alec Baldwin character. Because like when I remember this as a kid and it, when I watch it now, I'm like, I don't know if I should have been watching this as like an eight-year-old, but um, <laughs> I felt that way too. <laughs> I remember the Alec Baldwin character as just like totally just being a pig. That was it. Yeah. When I, I watched it this time, I thought it was interesting because there's a scene when she's like dancing with him, and there's a scene at the end at the wedding where it's almost like to me, it's like he represented a past in a world that she has to leave in order yes. to have her new identity. And there was also almost like a little bit of sadness, like a little bit of loss. It wasn't simply that he was horrible and everything else was great. Right. And I think her best friend in, in Joan Cusack, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Sin, 
represented that too, because Tess graduated out of that life. And even if you look at the fashion choices where they put her in that powder blue, hideous bridesmaid dress with the banana clips and the, I mean, it's, it's so bad, it's good. They made such a point of putting her in muted tones and muted makeup when she was in a successful context and making her a bit cartoonish in the Staten Island crowd of this is, you know, she's working her way out of that. And I I agree. I mean, he was, I think, in the same way that they made Harrison Ford or Jack Trainer such a babe and feminized and, you know, so decent and polite. They took the opposite with Mick and Alec Baldwin, you know, to have him screwing the the friend, you know, and mm-hmm. she comes home from night school. Her emerging market seminar. Yes. <laughs> emerging market, what's that wonderful line? Emerging, emerging markets can emerge on your birthday without <laughs> All right. I'll pick you up at five. We'll ride back together. I can't. I got emerging market seminar at 5.30. Jeez, it's your birthday. Can't they emerge without you just this once? It's got a relatively sophisticated understanding of finance. Mm-hmm. Not that it's really necessary but you know i mean there was one line which jumped out at me like this is 1988 this is really quite ahead of its time in you're gonna love this anna at one point she suggests that trask industries uses the leftover cash on its balance sheet to do a stock buyback and you're like nowadays stock buyback well of course you do that you wouldn't but in 1988 those things were new and weird yeah. and like wow that's kind of bold no i agree and there's also a line that jumped out at me because i feel like you would never have a heroine say this in a film today when she's dancing with Trask and she says, you are the one who like put in Japanese management principles when everyone else was kowtowing to the unions. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, if I had a nickel for every time I said that at a wedding. I mean... <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jolie, tell me, like, again, when it comes to the fairy tale, is there a sense in which it goes the other way, right? That she has to give up who she is, like that the original Tess with the big hair, that the Joan Cusack kind of lifestyle is her authentic self. And that all of that has to get jettisoned in order for her to be able to just climb a rung on the corporate ladder. I don't think so, because the first call that she made when she got that office was to sin, right? To her connection to her old life. And I I do think that you have to evolve and change, but it was clear from the opening scene when she, on her birthday, was going to night school and taking all these seminars that she 
was desperate for that path, that she had been working on that evolution for a long while. And that's why we see so many transitions in her roles and all of the smucky scenes with her from Bob and Arbitraz and and her colleagues, because I think that as an audience member, they wanted us to understand her plight. And that if you look at how the movie starts and ends, it's, it's that path that she was making for herself the whole time. Yeah, it's almost like she was always this diamond in the rough and then circumstances allowed her to reveal that. Yep. I, I totally agree with that. But I would say there's still, and maybe I was reading too much into it, but I, I did feel that there was a little bit of sense of loss though, that even though I agree with you that that last scene, which is which is a pretty wonderful scene uh, where she calls sin, like there's still a sense of like, she's shifted roles. It, it's not like you're seeing her, you don't expect her to do like, code switching where she's going to be going back and forth between, you know, like she has now moved into a different world. And that does result in, you know, probably losing connection with where she came from. And there is, you know, the the code switching is explicit, right? When she changes accents and she does the Quite literally. (laughs) And it's clearly part of the subterfuge that she needs to get ahead, which I guess... I don't know. There's nothing, Charlie, you don't read that as a tragic thing. You just read that as a sort of having a career thing. Perhaps because I relate to it, not as drastically, but I I grew up in a very small town where many people stayed. And it was totally and is totally acceptable to work in the local firehouse, work in the local school, work in the local bakery. And from a very early age... I did not want that. And it and I didn't even know why I didn't want that. I just I just wanted something bigger. And I still have links to that place and to people from that part of my life. But this is more who I always was meant to be, if that makes sense. And so I'm sure I'm projecting myself onto test. I will say for the benefit of the crowd who are listening to this podcast and have never met the force of nature that is Shirley Hunt. You are basically the <laughs> Kathleen Parker of public relations. You swan into any room and dominate it with impeccable fashion which we do need to talk about the the sigourney weaver costume design oh, which is please. Just, and she's Catherine parker yes sorry Catherine parker my bad just like she steals everything that she's in she i don't know the, clearly the costume designer was on top form with Catherine, and then like just the joan cusack the sin costumes those were just like glorious and fun but Julie, you're you're the expert on women's professional clothing. I take all my cues from you, Felix. (laughs) I mean, look, the obvious symbolism is that she's wearing red in all of the power scenes. Everything is red. The boots for skiing are red. The dress at her coming out party is red. Her jacket when she's, you know, banging down the door into Trask is red. It's very clearly a power color and meant to say I am in charge. Even at the cocktail party, it's a, a sea of gray suits and Catherine holding court in a beautifully attired red dress. And none of those things were an accident. Even, I think, down to the point, one of the songs that someone was dancing to was Lady in Red. Yep. So they wanted you to know in a, in a relatively cliched way, red is the power color, right? It's the Hillary Clinton pantsuit of its time. And, and there was no mistaking who you were supposed to know was in charge and um, the brains of the operation. And I also think they made her very glamorous. Ironically, I, I found her to be a bit, which I guess is the point, but cold and masculine. I mean, she was not a sexy character. If you look at 
Tess, Tess was sexy, right? The voice was sexy. The, you know, the lingerie was sexy and the way that she turned it on. I mean, the fashion was incredible. And I do think that it was a time, and I remember this from early days of my corporate career, very vividly having a boss tell me, you cannot paint your nails a color. They have to be clear or white. I expect you to wear a suit, but not with pants, a skirt every day. And nothing dangly, no earrings, no bracelets. And that was only 10 years after this movie was made. It just wasn't done to have a bold statement as a woman in the workplace like that. So I loved the fashion. And I loved the bad fashion just as much as I loved... The wedding dress. Ugh. I mean, the 80s hair and makeup deserves its own podcast. It really does. (laughs) It's just the volume alone of like... Even just thinking about sharing an elevator with some of the assistants, <laughs> there must be three feet wide of hairspray in each scene. So, look, I, I also think Catherine's character was so clearly from money. If you looked at the picture on her desk with her parents mm-hmm. and staying in her parents' house and the Warhols on the wall and, you know, the crystal just, you know, in her small fridge next to her bedroom. You know, I'm sure she was skiing in Stad. I mean, they didn't tell us exactly where she was going, but it was so clearly the archetype of someone that is moneyed, that went to the perfect schools, that speaks perfect German. and Not perfect, um, I have to say. Her German was <laughs> <laughs> Better than mine. Helmut, here is Catherine Parker. Wunderschön, danke. Und Sie? Wie ist der Rücken? Gut. Und Marlena? Fabelhaft. Hören Sie, ist es möglich, das 314 zu bekommen? Vielen, vielen Dank. Sie sind mein Süßer. It's interesting because I know critiques I've heard of the film. Well, people will say, oh, it's sexist because of her character and how she is depicted. And know if I really buy that, to be perfectly honest, because while you could say, well, she's coded as being like a powerful woman and thus a powerful woman has to be the bad guy. But then I also kind of feel like, well, she's coded as being a person in power who Mm -hmm. happens to be a woman. And I think it would be a little silly to just assume that every woman in power is going to behave no differently than a man in power would behave, especially at a time when not that many women were in power. It probably makes perfect sense that a lot of women would behave very similar to the men that were around them. And it also makes that moment when she steals Tess's idea so much more hurtful in a way, because it is coming from a woman. So I think it was, you know, useful to have her character be a female, but I don't I don't know if I buy the idea that it's necessarily sexist that she is this kind of dragon lady. I agree. And I also think if you look at the example of even the feedback in Tess's first job where she didn't get the promotion that she was up for because it went to someone from an Ivy League school, mm-hmm. I do think it's more an indictment on class than it is right. on the typical what we think of as sexist. I think it's really that you were on the wrong side of the tracks. I was on the right side of the tracks. Therefore, I have different opportunities, different wardrobes, and I don't have to. People will believe me. I think that's what's implied. It is interesting like how clearly they make this idea of like class as being performative mm-hmm. as this idea that you can, you literally put on, you literally put on the clothing, you literally put on the voice and like you as a person have not actually fundamentally changed, but it is almost, it's performance in the same way people sometimes talk about gender as being a performance. That's just so explicit in this film. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You should mention, too, like within the world of Petty Marsh, this was the classic, I mean, never in the movies has the distinction between the bankers and the traders been clearer than in Working Girl, where the whole like initial scenes where you have, you know, Bob the Cokehead and Oliver Platt and the Texas <laughs> and the brash traders, and then she gets moved into the M&A and it's suddenly smooth and it's Sigourney Weaver and everything's elegant. And there's probably even more money, but they're just much less flashy about it and much more understated. And this was pre-Gramleach Bliley, right? So like this was back when bank, and the the bankers and the traders couldn't actually work for the same company. Now I'm suddenly realizing that none of this was possible. But, but that <laughs> distinction, but that distinction, like it would make much more sense for her to rise up the ladder in her initial job on the trading floor. And she, when we first meet her, is quite good at like reading the stock ticker and knowing which stocks are going to go up and down and that kind of stuff. And that would be the natural progression. And then if she did really well in that, she would wind up as some kind of like Gary Cohn figure, some kind of rash working class trader, <laughs> you know, running the bank. But instead, she has to pretend to be someone else because she goes over to the banking side and the advisory side. Well, and I think it was also to maybe show a little bit that, you know, because this movie is all about appearances and what is underneath those appearances. You know, she goes to this brokerage firm and every, as you said, everything does look so much nicer. She, you know, she says, oh, it's so much better to work for this female boss. You know, I really think I have a chance. And then it turns out it is essentially exactly the same as where she was previously despite how elegant everything appears. I agree with that. And she has to leave the bank. She winds up working for Trask instead. Right. Well, uh, and I read it too as she traded harassment for theft. Right. <laughs> right. So it's pick your poison for the moment. And it was much less harried, clearly. But I also thought the psychological impact of Catherine, you know, saying, who makes it happen? And all these quasi-bullshitty terms to her, you know, we're a team. And really belittling her mm -hmm. right from the jump, you know, get my coffee. And so pretending to be a friend and someone who's going to support her, but actually being exactly the same. And you could argue is it better to have that be so overt or veiled in kindness? Who knows? It's also a very 80s movie. I mean, not just in terms of the fashion, but also in terms of the Reagan revolution and the careerism and the idea that you can sort of come up, rise up through the ranks in the bank and become successful. Like, that's all really there in that kind of, it's in that first wave of yuppies are good. Really, like, it's like, hey, we can achieve this. But, you know, I like that, actually, kind of. <laughs> I, I, that's one of the reasons I think I like this film, because it's not the, the standard business is always bad that, you know, 
I was thinking a little bit about the movie Baby Boom, which I think came out right around the same time about Diane Keaton, who like inherits a child. It's a very strange film. And part of the whole thing is that she realizes that actually she needs to be out of this rat race and, you know, her maternal side, she has a baby food company. But this film, I don't know, there's something I kind of like about it that it basically said, no, like these women are ambitious in this system too, and they can achieve success in this system too. And, and yes, of course, it is a fairy tale, but it's not just the kind of simplistic critique of business that you often get in right. films. And and there are goodies and baddies as well. Right, like, exactly. I, the other movie it reminds me of, of a bit is Wall Street, where you have a competitive takeover situation and the white knight comes in to save the company. And that's actually what's happening here, right? Is that Trask is the white knight coming in to save the family-owned company from this competitor who's got the company in a bear hug. I love that. They hug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bear hugs were in succession as well, right? Like the bear hugs are coming in. <laughs> What's old is new. I think, Anna, your point is dead right. And that Tess is scrappy, right? I think you want to root for someone who's doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. She's reading W Magazine to get the hot tip on dumplings. And, you know, she's paying attention to what so clearly looks like page six and piecing it all together. And I, I do think that it's hard not to root for someone like that because it's so clear that she's putting in the work and effort to try to try to make it happen. And you can see in the earlier scenes where they just don't listen to her stock advice. And she says, no one's going to listen to a secretary and that she has the, you know, the page tears to prove it. I mean, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, that saved her, right? Although her page tears are all like page six and gossip about DJs. And then she really does rely on Harrison Ford to do like the cap table stuff and the nitty gritty of don't the transaction. Don't we all feel well, don't Though, we all? To be, to be fair, there's a scene where she's like whatever the 80s version of downloading like an income statement and she's looking at it herself. <laughs> and like they're going through the financial statements together at the table and discussing. The sources you know. and uses. I remember in, that. In, in lingerie. In lingerie. Let's, I mean, <laughs> casually. So the other thing which I was wondering about is – you are unambiguously of the opinion, Jolie, that Melanie Griffiths is much sexier in this movie than Sigourney Weaver. Without question. Anna's nodding. Sigourney Weaver is the anti-sexy in this movie. I mean, she can't even get a, a kiss from the guy she thought was proposing to her two weeks prior, uh, you know, half naked on a bed. So, And she's referred to as bony. Oh, bony ass. Her bony ass comes up twice. There is the scene when she's like, she's broke her leg and she's at the hospital and she's wearing like a negligee with all the doctors and people around. <laughs> but it's almost goofy. Like she actually isn't that sexy in, this, in the same sense that when, as you're saying in that scene when Jack Trainer is coming over and she's trying to make herself look sexy, but it like isn't working. Even well, though she's even, a very attractive woman, but it just doesn't work. Well, but right. it's even how she talks about saying she's, you know, she, let's merge and she's... Yeah. <laughs> She's she's open to an offer, I think she says. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's so put on, right? And I think the the interesting thing about Tess is, like, she gradually evolves with the hair and the makeup and the shoulder pads remained. The shoulder pads, (laughs) you gotta love the 80s in so many ways. But I also think that's why they put all the buttons in the sex scene between Mm -hmm. Jack and Tess to show that she wasn't in a negligee. She was, you know, she was in a button-down blouse. That makes me think, too, a little bit of this idea of, like, someone who is just naturally good at something and someone who's, to a certain extent, like, was born into it. 
the Sigourney Weaver character, it's, she, it's clear she's good at her job. Like, that they never suggest that she's stupid. But it's like, okay, she went to the right school. She's from a wealthy family. Like, she got into it. Whereas the Tess character clearly has this, like, innate thing in her that the Sigourney Weaver character can never have those types of ideas because she just doesn't have it. Yes. And it's it goes back to the scrappiness and the hustle, right? She has to work so hard. She has to read everything. She has to pay attention. Whereas, you know, people just assume someone with the right upbringing and the right station can come in and, and claim the idea. I mean, the fact that Catherine storms into a boardroom on a deal she knows nothing about, the day she gets back from her miserable skiing trip where she didn't get proposed to and she broke some sort of limb. Um, I mean, the, the gumption, I mean, that's the word that Trask uses for Tess at the end. But I really think if you look at Catherine as a tryhard, it's so obvious that she's she's resting on her station versus, you know. Although if there's one indelible image from the movie, it's that one, right? Where she bursts in through the door and she's in the doorway in her red power suit and she's just, you know, screaming at her secretary. Like that is the, the, the single best, like single frame of the movie. And when she feigns, you know, being lightheaded when she doesn't know the answer to something and all, you know. And everyone has to give her a seat and fawn all over her. And it's a savage move, if you think about it. It totally changed the tempo of everything in that meeting. And the fact that Tess didn't fight is so interesting, Mm -hmm. that she just got up and left because that's what she thought she had to do. There's always that part of her that feels like she's a fraud. And then in that moment, someone literally is telling her, you are a fraud and she's exposed. The only thing she can do is flee, even though obviously in reality, like she's not a fraud in terms of it being her idea. I do think Melanie Griffiths is the only person who actually acted in this movie. Like, everyone else was kind of just doing the the standard, you know, comic roles that they were cast as. You know, you get, you know, Oliver Platt or Harrison Ford doing Cary Grant or Sigourney Weaver doing her whole comic thing, which, you know, she can... We've seen her in, like, Galaxy Quest. She's awesome at that kind of stuff. But... <laughs> Don't forget Kevin Spacey. And Kevin Spacey, yeah, just completely hamming it up to to like turning the dial to 14 and doing the the, the cokehead of the arbitrageur and then melanie griffiths is playing a really fleshed out conflicted internally conflicted character who's being pulled in a bunch of different directions doesn't really understand what she's getting herself into is never that particularly sure of herself, knows that she wants to try, but doesn't know how to get where she's going. And she often feels or felt to me like she was in a different movie from the rest of them, that she Mm -hmm. wasn't in the Mm -hmm. comedy that the rest of them were in. And she was in some kind of like kitchen sink tragedy or, or or, you know, verite movie. And I don't know how deliberate that was on Mike Nichols' part, but it, it definitely stood out. Well, the interesting thing there is that this movie came out the year that Mike Nichols married Diane Sawyer. And obviously my 10-year-old self didn't know this. My current <laughs> self does. And I don't know, I was reaching. But I was like, he here he is married to such a strong woman coming up in a business that was known for Cronkite and, and all sorts of interesting men. I mean, men hosted the evening news. It was never a woman. So I think that for Tess, showing her between those two worlds, that to me was the tension of all of it. It's like you have to be one person when you're in Staten Island and you have to put on that you are another person in Manhattan. But I I agree. I think they made it so apparently a challenge for her that she's the only one really doing the work that everybody else just sort of fell upon it. On which note, Jolie Hunt, thank you. 
Thank you. For coming on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. It was a pleasure to rent this thing on my Apple TV. I, I thank you for forcing me to do so. It was a good choice, I have to say. And we all love the movie, and it's a good movie, right? Like, this is definitely one it we really can recommend. Is, yeah. Love. Love, yeah, love, love. Love the movie. 